Our Father in heaven, our wondrous and glorious King, our gracious and merciful Savior, we thank You for You have chosen us before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus, Your Son. We thank You that You have poured out Your Holy Spirit upon us to make us Your new creation, to give us faith, to lead us in repentance, to help us to walk in the way of life. O oh, great God, we enter Your temple today with shouts of joy and with songs of praise. We come before You celebrating the unity of Your people, all the saints in heaven and on earth, all the saints throughout the ages. We come before You to celebrate the story of Your people and the truth that we are now part of that story. And indeed, this is our chapter in the story. Oh, great God, we thank You for You have redeemed us through Your Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have brought us out of slavery to sin and death with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You have set us free to serve You, for there is life and gladness in Your name. You provide for us. Never-ending rivers of mercy flow out from You. You are robed in splendid and majestic light, brighter than a thousand suns. Oh, great God, You are a holy terror, always good, but never safe. May we tremble before You. May we fear You. May we honor You. May we set our hopes on You. May we find our happiness in You. For at Your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, in whose name there is deliverance. Blessed be our God, for He is our rock, our Redeemer, and our salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father, open our eyes today through Your Son that we might behold His glory, that we might see Him for who He is, and we might see what it means to be His disciples. This we pray in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We continue to make our way through Mark's Gospel. Today we come to the final healing miracle Jesus performs in Mark's Gospel. Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. This is the twelfth healing miracle in Mark's Gospel. That means there is one healing miracle for each of the twelve disciples. And we're supposed to see that connection. That's That connection is there because Jesus heals His people. He heals His disciples. And we need to understand that these miracles are not violations of some kind of natural law. Rather, they are restorations of the natural order. Restorations of the creation. They are revelations of what God wants the world to be like. Indeed, what He promises to make it like in the end. And so really, every single one of Jesus' miracles has to be looked at in two ways. Certainly, they are symbolic pictures. They are parables which, uh, in which spiritual healing is portrayed by physical healing. There's always a deeper meaning, a deeper layer of meaning to the miracle. But the miracles also need to be understood as historical events, events which take place within the space-time creation, events in which creation is restored. Because after all, Jesus didn't come just to save souls, but to save 
bodies. He didn't come just to open our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our hearts, so to speak. He came to heal physical eyes as well. And so the miracles reveal Him as a holistic Savior determined to redeem His creation. And so we can't just spiritualize these miracles. They do have a spiritual dimension. We're going to talk about that this morning. But we have to remember their physical healings as well. Jesus heals us inside and out. He heals us spiritually and physically. And that means the problems that the miracles treat, uh, those ailments, are certainly physical ailments, but they also have a, a symbolic dimension, a spiritual dimension to them. Blindness is certainly a physical problem. No doubt about that. But in Scripture, it also points to our deepest spiritual problem. Sin blinds us. Sin darkens us. It's very ironic in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, it says their eyes were open. But of course, in the very moment that their eyes were open, their eyes were also darkened. Their eyes were open and they were blinded in the same moment. In seeing, they could not see. Or as Romans 1 says, really talking about the after effects, the aftermath of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, it says humanity's foolish hearts were darkened. Sin blinds. Sin darkens. This uh, final healing miracle really wraps up a rather distinct section in Mark's Gospel. Uh, a section that has really focused on who Jesus is and what it means to be His disciple. It's really from, from Mark 8 to 10, this is really what you're dealing with. The identity of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This section really begins back in Mark chapter 8 with another healing miracle, another sight-giving miracle. Jesus heals a blind man in chapter 8. He heals another blind man here in chapter 10. And so these miracles of giving sight to the blind really mark out this section and distinguish this section from the rest of the Gospel. Sometimes uh, when you have two bookends like this in Mark's Gospel, which Mark does frequently, it's called a Mark and Sandwich because you've got the two end pieces, the pieces of bread, so to speak, and then you've got the meat in the middle. In this particular case, the two end pieces, the pieces of bread, would be these miracles in which Jesus heals blindness, He cures blindness, and then the meat of the sandwich in the middle is where there are these uh, different things are said or different things happen which show us who Jesus is and what it means to be His follower. And so this miracle, I think, has to be understood as culminating the themes in this section of Mark's Gospel. This section has to do with Messiahship. Early on in this section of Mark's Gospel, Peter rightly identifies Jesus as Messiah. But Peter and the other disciples still really don't understand what that means. They don't see what Messiahship Means They think they know what it means for Jesus to be Messiah, but they're mistaken. They're blind and they need to have their eyes open. Likewise, this section has to do with discipleship. It's all about following Jesus on the way, on the road that leads to the cross. They're following Jesus. There are a lot of references to the way or to the road in this section. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus in the way. A disciple is a follower of the Messiah. But again, the disciples are deeply mistaken. They think they know what discipleship is. They think they know what it means to follow Jesus in this way, but they're mistaken. Again, their eyes are blind. They need to have their eyes open. So we have to ask as we approach this story, how does this story open their eyes to Messiahship and to 
discipleship. Indeed, we have to ask, how does this story open our eyes to messiahship and to discipleship? This story shows us what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It shows us what it means for us to be his disciples. And it does this by showing us three roles that Jesus plays and three relationships the disciple Bartimaeus has. That sounds like a lot, you know, six things. Uh, but I, I think you'll see that all these fit together rather neatly, rather compactly. Three roles Jesus plays, three roles revealing who he is as Messiah, and three relationships Bartimaeus has revealing what it means for him to be a model disciple. So let's look first at the three roles Jesus plays. First, Jesus here is presented as the new Joshua. Verse 46 gives us the location of this story. It takes place in the vicinity of Jericho. Now, think about that for just a minute. Mark never includes random details for no purpose. If he has included this geographic tidbit, this little bit of Jesus' travel itinerary, if he wants us to know the geographic coordinates of where Jesus is when this happens, that's for a reason. Think about the wider context here. Uh, The disciples certainly were expecting war. They were expecting conquest. They think Jesus is going to Jerusalem to set up a kingdom, to cast down his enemies. Certainly within uh, the, the, the Israelite nation, he had enemies, but especially the Romans. He's going to cast down his enemies and vanquish his enemies and set up his kingdom. They expect Jesus to make a triumphant entry into the city and that he will go vanquish his enemies. They think the Son of Man is on the warpath. The time for him to assert himself and establish his kingdom has happened. And so they're moving towards Jerusalem, but they pass by Jericho along the way. And no doubt as they approach Jericho, the disciples' minds drifted to another conquering figure who approached Jericho centuries before. Now note this, too. Jesus' name in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, was actually Joshua. We pronounce it as Jesus, but... In the day, they would have pronounced it as Joshua. When Bartimaeus here cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he was probably speaking Aramaic, which means he was crying out, Joshua, son of David, have mercy on me. Joshua, have mercy on me. Now think about this again. Do a little theological geography here. We're in the context of Jericho. The last time a Joshua showed up at the gates of Jericho, what did he do? He did not show mercy. He marched around the city with his people seven times and they blew trumpets and the walls of the city fell in and the city was destroyed and only Rahab and her family were spared. Indeed, Jericho was the very first city that Joshua conquered in the promised land after crossing the Jordan. You can read all about this, of course, in the book of Joshua. It's all about Joshua's conquest of the land beginning with the city of Jericho. As he marched around the city and blew trumpets, the city collapsed. The people were utterly destroyed. And the cha- Joshua chapter 6, the chapter where this is recorded, it ends with Joshua pronouncing a curse on the city of Jericho. The first Joshua brought judgment. Now another Joshua comes through the city bringing salvation, announcing salvation, blessing the city with his presence healing the city's blind man with his power. He's a new Joshua, but he comes not bringing judgment. He brings salvation. Yes, he's going forth conquering and to conquer, but it's a different kind of conquest. He's not conquering 
Canaanites, he's conquering blindness and other ailments, other deformities in the creation. The first Joshua came in judgment. The last Joshua brings mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Bartimaeus actually identifies a second role Jesus plays. The first role is Jesus as a new Joshua. Bartimaeus also identifies Jesus as the son of David. He cries out to the son of David. Bartimaeus understands that Jesus is the new David. He's the king. He's following in David's footsteps just as he's following in Joshua's footsteps. And again, much of this has to do with conquest and with warfare. There are a lot of interesting connections between what Jesus is doing in this part of Mark's Gospel and the life of David. You go back to 2 Samuel and you find that David rides into Jerusalem and conquers the city to make it his capital, to make it the center of his kingdom. In order to make Jerusalem his capital city, he had to defeat the Jebusites. Now, the Jebusites were so secure and they were so confident in their position in the city and in their fortress within the city and their ability to hold the city that they taunted David. They taunted David as he came into Jerusalem. They said to David, even our blind and our lame could defeat you. Of course, David defeats them. (laughs) David conquers the Jebusites. And then he says to the Jebusites, hey, he says, if you Jebusites, if you want to say you're blind, well, then know that I hate the blind. The Jebusites taunted David by saying, even our blind can defeat you. After David defeats them, he says, look, even our, if you want to be blind, if you want to say that you're blind people, then know I hate the blind. They had mocked David as if he couldn't beat even blind Jebusites. After he did defeat the Jebusites, he said, you really are like blind men. But here Jesus deals with a truly blind man in a totally different way. He doesn't conquer the man. He conquers his blindness. Now here's what's interesting. Bartimaeus obviously expected this son of David to cure his blindness. But how did Bartimaeus know that the son of David could and would be willing to heal his blindness? How did Bartimaeus know this? After all, the last time... David, we're talking now about the son of David, but when David himself entered the city, he didn't come curing blindness. He defeated blind Jebusites. Jebusites who were like the blind. It's very interesting. The twelve disciples who are with Jesus certainly can see, but they're blind. They're blind to who Jesus is. Bartimaeus is blind, but he can see. He can see more of who Jesus is. What he lacks in sight, he makes up for with insight. He can see who Jesus really is and what Jesus has come to do. He can see what it means for Jesus to be the promised King, the Son of David. What does the Son of David have to do with healing blindness? Again, you go back to 2 Samuel, David didn't heal the blind. He mocked the Jebusites as if they were blind. Why does Bartimaeus expect healing of his blindness from the son of David? David himself didn't do any miracles like this. David never healed the blind. Why does Bartimaeus expect the son of David to do this? Well, I think Bartimaeus was a good student of Scripture. Let me put some things together for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan announced God's covenant with the house 
of David. It will be an everlasting covenant, and indeed God will share His own throne with David's son. David's son will in some way sit on the divine throne. So the throne of the son of David will be identified with God's throne in some way. And when these covenant promises are made in 2 Samuel 7, God continually refers to David as my servant. David is the king, but he's also the servant. And when David responds to the Lord, he identifies himself by calling himself servant. He says, I am your servant. David is the servant of the Lord. David's son will be the servant of the Lord. Well, when you come to the book of Isaiah, this servant of the Lord, this Davidic figure, takes on a special role. Whenever Isaiah is talking about the servant of the Lord, we need to be thinking son of David. Because David's been identified as the Lord's servant in that covenant promise made in 2 Samuel 7. So what kind of things does Isaiah say the servant of the Lord, the son of David, will do? This new David. What will the king do when he comes? Well, Isaiah 35, just to give you one example, says that when he comes, the desert shall blossom like a rose and the people shall see the glory of the Lord. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf Unstop. That's all in Isaiah 35. And indeed, that chapter ends by saying, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Remember, in just a few verses before this story, Jesus says He will be a ransom. He will give Himself as a ransom. He'll lay down His life as a ransom for His people to restore His shattered creation so they can return to Zion with singing in a new exodus. We also find in Isaiah 35, He's going to heal the eyes of the blind so they can see the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 42 says, The servant of the Lord will be a comfort to the people and a light to the nations. He will open blind eyes and bring prisoners out from the darkness of prison. Later in Isaiah 42, the Lord says, I will lead the blind by a way they did not know. This is the way section of Mark's Gospel. Jesus is leading people in the way. Bartimaeus is going to join him on the way. What do you think Bartimaeus thought about? You know, Sitting there as a blind man in the synagogue, what do you think he thought about when he heard those kinds of passages from Isaiah read in the synagogue? I'm sure he thought, when the servant of the Lord comes, my eyes will be open. When the Son of David comes, when the King comes, my blindness will be cured and I will see the glory of the Lord and I will follow Him in His way. Bartimaeus is physically blind, but already he can see more of who Jesus is than the disciples. He is the new Joshua. And he's the Son of David, the servant of the Lord, who comes to redeem and rescue and restore and renew. The one who comes to fulfill Isaiah's kingdom vision. This blind beggar Bartimaeus has far more insight into who Jesus is than the disciples who have been traveling along with him for a few years now. And that brings us really to the last role Jesus plays. In this passage, Jesus comes as the embodiment of God's mercy. Bartimaeus identifies Jesus as the one who will show mercy. That's Bartimaeus' prayer after all, is it not? That's what Bartimaeus asks for. He says, have mercy on me. That's about as good of a prayer as you can pray. 
Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Have mercy on me. Bartimaeus knows his misery. He knows his physical blindness. He knows his spiritual blindness. He knows he needs healing and and rescue. He knows he needs redemption and forgiveness. And so he cries out for mercy. He recognizes, he sees Jesus as the one who brings mercy. What's that word mercy mean? It means all kinds of things in Scripture. It means Jesus is the one who will show compassion. It means Jesus is the one who will bring deliverance. It means Jesus will enter into the suffering of His people and receive the judgment they deserve in order to bring His people into His kingdom. Mercy means He heals, He forgives, He helps, He transforms. He enters into our misery in order to bring us into His glory. Jesus came to show mercy. He came to show mercy to His enemies. He came to show mercy to the blind by opening their eyes. He came to show mercy to sinners by forgiving them. He came to show mercy to those who will admit their need. The way to receive Jesus' mercy is to admit your need for mercy, to cry for mercy. What does it mean to cry for mercy? It means you admit your helplessness. You admit your brokenness. You admit you can't do for yourself what must be done. You can't save yourself. You need rescue. You need help coming from the outside. And Jesus comes to be that helper and that rescuer. He comes to show mercy. Those are the three roles Jesus plays here. He's the new Joshua. He's the son of David. And He is the merciful one. Now you may have noticed this. All three of those roles are identified by Bartimaeus himself as he cries out. They're all there in that one sentence cry that Bartimaeus makes. Joshua, son of David, have mercy on me. That right there tells you that Bartimaeus is a model disciple. He's certainly a better disciple than the twelve disciples at this point. But let me unfold for you what we can learn about discipleship from looking at Bartimaeus more closely. Looking at, at, at what happens here with him, I think shows us a lot about discipleship. We can look at Bartimaeus in terms of three relationships. Really, a series of comparisons that I think Mark wants us to make. Actually, all of these comparisons are found in this chapter, so they're found right here in Mark's Gospel. I think Mark has written the Gospel in such a way that we can't help but compare Bartimaeus to figures who come before him in this chapter of the Gospel. Mark has written the Gospel in such a way that we have to make these comparisons. Well, first, we can't help but compare Bartimaeus to James and John. That's in the immediately preceding story. James and John had a request for Jesus, just like Bartimaeus has a request for Jesus. The two stories are right next to each other. We can't help but make comparisons. And in fact, when James and John came to Jesus and when Bartimaeus came to Jesus, Jesus responded to each of them with exactly the same words. Look at Mark 10.36 and Mark 10.51. And you will see Jesus using the exact same words to speak to James and John and to speak to Bartimaeus. He says to each of them, what do you want me to do for you. He uses the exact same language. And so obviously we're being invited to make this comparison. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? How do each of these parties respond to Jesus' question? You know, there's a deliberate parallel. Jesus asked them the same question, but that's really where the similarities end. Because what they ask for in response to Jesus is completely different. James and John demand glory. 
Bartimaeus begs for mercy. James and John ask to be given positions of glory. Bartimaeus asks to see the glory of another. Obviously, James and John think they can see when in reality they're blind. Bartimaeus is blind and knows it. He just wants to see Jesus. When he says that his request is that he might see, you might as well finish that sentence. It's so I can see you, Jesus. That's what Bartimaeus really wants. James and John assume they can see just fine as they are. Bartimaeus knows he can't. He knows he's blind. And so he asks to have his eyes open. Now you see the difference there. You see the contrast. James and John want glory for themselves. Bartimaeus wants to behold the glory of Christ. He wants to see Jesus more fully. You know, a lot of times when Jesus performs a healing, especially in Mark's Gospel, we're not told the name of the person He heals. Uh, many commentators think that we're given Bartimaeus' name here because he must have become a well-known disciple in the early church. Remember, after Jesus died and rose again and then ascended, it's not like everybody else who had been around just went away. Bartimaeus was still around. He was a guy you could go talk to about his encounter with Jesus. And there are reasons to think from traditions that have come down to us in church history that Bartimaeus became a fairly well-known disciple. And so that may be why Mark calls attention to his name here. It's actually redundant the way Mark puts it. He's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. But Bartimaeus already means son of Timaeus. I think that's probably true. Bartimaeus was a well-known disciple in the early church. But I think there's more going on here. I think Mark wants us to consider the meaning of his name. There's a little bit of confusion and dispute about this, but it seems the best answer is this. You know what Bartimaeus means, that, that, that name? It means son of honor. And again, think about this in connection with James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, want to become sons of honor. They want honor for themselves. That's what they go to Jesus to ask for. Bartimaeus is a true son of honor because instead of seizing honor, he receives honor. Precisely because he doesn't seize honor for himself, he's given the very honor that James and John wanted. You see that? Not only that, but there's another interesting connection here. This is taking place in the vicinity of Jericho. Jericho is situated in the territory that in ancient times was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin in Israel. This is Benjamite territory. But you know what the name Benjamin means? Benjamin means son of my right The fact that Bartimaeus lives here means he may be a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. What do James and John want? They want that position at the right hand of Jesus in His glory. They want to be Benjamites. They want to be sons of the right hand. But it's blind Bartimaeus who is the true Benjaminite, the son of the right hand, the son of honor. Now think about how this applies to your own life. When Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you? And I would say He does ask that question to all of us. All of His promises about prayer in the New Testament where He says, ask of me and I will give. Ask in my name and I will give whatever you ask. That's just Jesus saying to us, what do you want me to do for you? How do you answer that question? How do you pray? How do you petition Jesus? Do you go to Jesus with a self-centered wish list? Asking for honors for yourself? Asking for positions of glory for yourself? Or do you first of all come asking for mercy? 
You come asking for sight so that you can know and see the glory of Christ. Do you seek glory without suffering? Or do you ask for mercy so that you can see Jesus in His glory and share in His suffering? See, James and John think that discipleship means getting glory for themselves. Bartimaeus knows that being a disciple really means seeing the glory of Christ. And whatever glory we have is simply a sharing in Christ's own glory. James and John come to Jesus and they're power hungry and they're glory grasping. Bartimaeus comes in humility and pleads for mercy and asks only that he might see Jesus more clearly. How do we pray? James and John should have been asking for mercy. They should have been asking for sight. So they could understand why Jesus was going to the cross. Remember, Jesus makes His prediction that He's going to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And then immediately after that, they come asking for glory. They should have asked for understanding. They should have asked for sight. But they don't. And so Bartimaeus is enabled to see while they're still blind. Bartimaeus knew he was blind. And that's why he could ask for and receive him. He knew he needed mercy, and so he asks for it and receives it. But there's another comparison here we have to make. Pushing back a little further into Mark 10, we have to compare Bartimaeus and the rich young ruler. Remember from earlier in this chapter, the rich young ruler? uh, He wanted to know what he needed to do to enter eternal life, and so he comes and he asks Jesus. And Jesus finally answers him saying, Go sell all and give your wealth to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler goes away sad because he had great riches. He couldn't bear to part with them. He couldn't stand to give his riches away. And so really he becomes the example of an anti-disciple, an undisciple, one who refuses the call, one who hears the call and refuses to follow Jesus. Now, the rich young ruler was obviously wealthy. Compare that to Bartimaeus here. Bartimaeus is Bartimaeus is a beggar. His blindness has reduced him to poverty. There's a sharp of a contrast, as you can imagine. The rich young ruler with poor begging Bartimaeus. The rich young man has got power, he's got status, he's got wealth. Bartimaeus has none of those things. But look at what Bartimaeus does. When he finally hears the crowd saying, Jesus is calling you, what does he do? And of course that term calling is a... It's a special word in Mark, indeed in all the Gospels. It really has to do with a call to discipleship. Jesus is doing much more than just calling Bartimaeus so his sight can be healed. He's inviting Bartimaeus to be a disciple. That's the call that goes out, the call to discipleship. And how does Bartimaeus respond? The text says he threw aside his garment, rose up, and came to Jesus. Now some take the throwing aside of his garment as a sign of his faith. After all, if he had remained blind, he wasn't going to be able to find his garment. So if he didn't expect healing, he should have taken his garment with him. So the fact that he cast it aside shows he's pretty sure he's going to get healed. He's pretty sure he's going to have his sight and he's going to be able to to, to see and go find his garment again if he wants to. He casts aside his cloak. It's a sign of his faith. And I think that's true, but I think there's a little bit more to it. Bartimaeus was poor. He was a beggar. And so this garment, this cloak, is probably his only real possession. Let me tell you about cloaks for just a minute. In the Law of Moses, if a poor man gave up his garment, he gave up his cloak as 
collateral for some kind of loan. His cloak had to be returned to him at night so he could sleep with it, so he could stay warm, so he wouldn't freeze. So even if that cloak is collateral for a loan, it's to be given back to the poor man at night because it's the only thing he's got. And he's got to have it to stay warm. When Bartimaeus cast aside his garment to respond to Jesus' call, what is he doing? He is leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. In other words, Bartimaeus is doing exactly what the rich young ruler refused to do. The rich young ruler heard the call, leave all and follow Jesus. He refused it. Bartimaeus hears the call and what does he do? He casts aside his one earthly possession and runs after Jesus. He is the model disciple. He shows us what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who puts Jesus first. Who gives Jesus prime place in his life. So everything else is subordinated to Jesus. A disciple is someone who is willing to give up anything and everything for Jesus' sake. A disciple is someone who is willing to leave all to follow. And so Bartimaeus casts aside his cloak because he wants to be clothed with Jesus. That's what really matters. Not his cloak. It's being clothed with Jesus. That's what matters to Bartimaeus. The rich young ruler went away sad. He went his own way, refusing the call, refusing to follow Jesus. Bartimaeus follows Jesus in the way of the cross. He's willing to give up anything to become a Jesus follower, a disciple of Jesus. And then finally, we have to look at Bartimaeus in relation to the crowd's around him. There are crowds around Jesus and these crowds hear Bartimaeus uh, crying out. Uh, the crowds apparently saw themselves as sort of Jesus handlers. Uh, the, the, the protectors of Jesus' time. They want to get Jesus back on the road and, and to Jerusalem because that's really where the action is going to happen. The crowds clearly don't share Jesus' compassion for needy people like Bartimaeus. And so when they hear Bartimaeus crying out, they rebuke him. Again, going back even earlier into Mark's Gospel, it's the same word that's used when there are parents who want to bring their children to Jesus for blessing and the disciples rebuke them. The same word is used here of the crowds rebuking Bartimaeus. These parents wanted to get their little children to Jesus, but the disciples thought that, that Jesus was too important for that. Too important for little children. And so the disciples rebuked those parents and sent them away. And of course, Jesus in turn has to rebuke his disciples. Well, here the crowd is operating on the same principles. They think Jesus is just too important to stop and help a beggar. He's too important. And so they rebuke Bartimaeus. Really what that does is it puts Bartimaeus in the same position as those babies that mothers and fathers were trying to get to Jesus. Indeed, Bartimaeus here is crying out like a baby. I mean, what is it about babies when they cry? They don't care who they annoy. <laughs> they don't care that their cries are bothering you and other people. They just cry out. They have needs that must be met. And so they cry until those needs are met. That's what Bartimaeus is doing here. He's crying out like a baby because he knows you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. Bartimaeus knows he's like a child. He's helpless. He cries out and he's not going to stop crying out and he doesn't care who rebukes him. He's going to keep on crying because he wants to get to Jesus. Bartimaeus can see what the crowds cannot. The blind man sees while the seeing crowd is blind. 
He sees more of the truth about Jesus than they do. And the reason Bartimaeus can see the truth about Jesus is because of his faith. It's because of his faith. When he says to Jesus, Rabbi, restore my sight, Jesus says to him, your faith has saved you. And immediately his sight is restored. And what does he do? He follows Jesus on the way. He follows Jesus on the way. In fact, look at, look at how Bartimaeus' relationship to the way changes through the course of this story. At the beginning of the story, it says he is beside the way. He's alongside the way, begging. When he's healed, Jesus says, go your way. Go your own way. Go whatever way you want. Your faith has made you well. But what way does Bartimaeus want to go? He wants to go in the way of Jesus. The way of the cross. And so the story ends. He followed Jesus on the way. He moves from being next to the way to being in the way and on the way. Following Jesus in the way that leads to the cross. Bartimaeus is a true disciple because he longs to be with Jesus. He longs to experience Jesus' mercy. He wants to be healed by Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. And so he cries out to Jesus. And when Jesus calls him, he leaves everything behind. He trusts Jesus and he follows Jesus in the way of the cross. And that means he beholds the glory of Jesus in the way. See, that's Discipleship, that's what it means to be a disciple. This story shows us true messiahship and true discipleship. True messiahship, who is Jesus? He's the new Jesus. He's the new Joshua. He's the son of David. He's the merciful one. That's true messiahship. And what is true discipleship? If that's who Jesus is, then who must we be? We must be the people who have had our eyes open. To behold the glory of Jesus. We must be the people who in faith have cried out and begged and pleaded for Jesus to show us mercy. We are the people who put Jesus first in our lives. So we're willing to give up anything and everything to be His disciples. We are the people who want to follow Him by faith in the way of the cross. As His disciples, let us rely on Christ's sight-giving, life-giving, glory-giving, honor-giving mercy. Let us pray together. Father, we do indeed thank You that Jesus has come to bring in the kingdom. We thank You that we have been made members of His kingdom. May we follow Him in the way of the kingdom, which is the way of wisdom. It is the way of the cross. But it's the only way that leads to glory. Father, we ask that through Your Son and by the work of Your Spirit, You would be continually opening our eyes more and more that we might see more clearly and more sharply the glory of Jesus, who He is, and all that He's done for us. And may we by faith embrace Him unto the saving of our souls and our bodies. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.